Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. Matthew 16, 13 to 28 this morning. Um, I was so encouraged last week to be able to just sit out in the pews and listen to the preaching of the Word through Johnny as he opened up 1 John chapter 3. I was so blessed by it. I hope you were as well. I took a ton of notes, and uh, let me just plug our uh, sermon papers uh, in the the lobby out there. If you'd like to take notes, we encourage you to do that. Um, Just really helpful to help you follow along and maybe revisit some of the things that were said. I was reminding myself this week that those who know God practice righteousness, which was Johnny's main theme, and um, I think we would all benefit from taking notes uh, as we listen to the preaching of, of the Word. This morning we return to Matthew's Gospel, and again, like I said, chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, and as you turn there, uh, you'll find these words as Matthew continues his narrative of the life of Jesus. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning our prayer is simple. We pray that in the very same way that You revealed Your Son to Peter, that You would reveal Your Son to us. That You would teach us who Jesus is, what He has done, and how we can follow Him. Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you travel to Boston and enter the Museum of Fine Arts, one of the pieces which you will see is known as Paul Gauguin's Masterpiece. I didn't take very many art history classes in college, so I, like many of you, would need a guide as I viewed this painting. But you'd be told that the proper way to view it is from right to left. At the far right, there is a portrait of a young infant girl, the object of the adoring gaze of her parents, whereas in the middle, there is a woman picking an apple and a small child eating the fruit of the tree. And then on the far right, there is an old elderly woman, almost with an inconsolable look on her face, staring out into the distance. And as you look at this painting from right to left, you would notice that at the top left-hand corner of the canvas, there are three sentences written in French which give the painting its interpretation. The statements are, where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? In French, those statements comprise the title of the work. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? It's hard to imagine that there would be questions weightier or more important or more practical for the living of our lives than those. Now, I hesitate to refer to Matthew 16 as Matthew's masterpiece, But it certainly is the climax of the second portion, or the first portion rather, of Matthew's gospel. And just like Gauguin, Matthew has embedded three of the most important, I might argue, the absolute most important questions that a man or a woman will ever ask for their lives both here and in the life to come. Those questions are simple and yet profound, they are penetrating, and they demand an answer. They are questions, I might add, that if we are unable to answer, there is no meaningful way in which we might refer to one another as Christians. Yes, very simple and very profound. The questions are as follows. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Number two, what did he do? It's not enough simply to know who Jesus is. We must know what He has done. And thirdly, how can I follow Him? If we are to, in any meaningful way, consider one another believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be able to answer those three questions. Who is Jesus? What did He do? And how can I follow Him? You can see why this is the climax of the first part of Matthew's gospel. These are the weightiest issues in the realm of human existence and spirituality. I want to dive right in and begin with the question, who is Jesus? Now, you know as well as I do that answers to this question abound. All you have to do is walk through the supermarket checkout aisle on uh, any Easter holiday, and you'll notice that there are magazines published by Time and Newsweek which ask this very question, who is Jesus? Some of the opinions or notions that are peddled about the identity of Jesus are founded on Scripture. Some of them are just misinformed. Some of them are just flat out wrong. But nevertheless, 
views on Jesus abound today as they did in Jesus' day. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some say John the Baptist. That was Herod's opinion back in chapter 14, verse 2. You'll remember Herod in seeing all that Jesus was doing, said to his people, this has got to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist, that great prophet, the forerunner of Jesus himself, who proclaims repentance to the people of God. Others said, well, he's, he's probably Elijah, Israel's great prophet, the man who boomed from Mount Carmel, calling the people to repentance and faithfulness to the God of the covenant. Others say, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, sent to preach to a people who would not listen. How do you like that for a ministry call? Jeremiah, you're going to go preach to the people. By the way, nobody's going to listen. Calling the people again back to faithfulness to the God of the covenant. It's interesting to me that in Jesus' day, nobody mistook the fact that He was a preacher. People identified in the words of Jesus, the spirit of all of the great prophets of old, calling God's people back to faithfulness and obedience and love to the God of their covenant. It seems to me that in our day, most of the opinions about Jesus have little to do with His prophetic ministry and far more to do with Him just being simply a nice guy. A life coach, if you will. I was astonished a couple of, uh, maybe a month and a half ago now, one of the young men in our community turned to me unprompted and said, you know, Mike, Jesus was amazing. I said, Yep. Yes, he was. He is amazing, as a matter of fact. But what causes you to say that? And he said, well, you know, I just, I look at the life of Jesus and he's got the juice. And I just stared. I, I mean, this is how I realized I'm getting old. I had no idea. I had to come back here and ask Patrick Connor, what on earth does that mean? Is that a good thing? I think that's a good thing. He said, oh yeah, it's a great thing. It means you've got the it factor. It means you've got a magnetic personality. There's some street cred about you. You want to have the juice, you don't want to have smoke. That's a freebie. <laughs> juice, not smoke. But he said, Jesus has got the juice. I really wish that I could be more like Jesus. In Jesus' day, the notion on uh, the word on the street was that he was a, a prophet, a mighty preacher of repentance. Today, the word on the street is that he's sort of a nice guy, a man with street cred and a magnetic personality. It's hard to dislike Jesus. But I want you to notice in this passage that, that Christ will not allow the disciples to remain sort of stagnant, believing only what popular opinion about Him is. Because in verse 15, He turns to them and He says, but who do you, that's plural, He's speaking to all the disciples, who do you say that I am? There's our question, who is Jesus? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the absolute high point 
of Matthew's Gospel. If you remember, in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is identified as the Son of David. He's the King, the long-awaited King. In chapter 28, He proclaims to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. And here, for the first time, the disciples have put their fingers on who Jesus is. You are the Christ. That means the Anointed One. The Son of the living God. It's hard not to hear echoes of 2 Samuel chapter 7 in this response. When the Lord says to David that he will always have a descendant on his throne and that that descendant will be to God as a son and that God will be to him as a father. Peter is saying, you are the king, the long-awaited king, Israel's great and final king. You are the king of the universe. Who is Jesus? He's the king with all authority. He rules over the entire universe. There is no one greater than Jesus. And do you notice the response of Christ in verse 17? Blessed are you. Ones, if you have come to this conclusion this morning that Jesus is this King, blessed are you. Because you were not clever enough to figure this out on your own. You did not discover this because you have more spiritual inclinations than others. But the words of Jesus to Peter apply to you and to me just the same. Blessed are you because my Father has revealed this to you. Now, this entire passage pulses with the identity of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Matthew intends for us to see that Jesus is the king, but notice what he says to Peter. Blessed are you, and I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, sounds very similar to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, it stands to be said in a context such as ours that there is nothing in this passage that even smells of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Pope. Rather, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, you, Peter, are the rock upon which I will build my church as you confess and proclaim that I am the Christ. Jesus has a word here about Himself being the King, and He has a word about the kingdom. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed. As you proclaim this King, the doors to the kingdom are flung open for all to enter. And yet strangely, Immediately after Jesus says this, He charges the disciples to tell no one that He is the Christ. Why? Isn't that strange to you? That the very moment that the disciples realize who Jesus is, Jesus says, keep it quiet. Put it under a hat. And the reason that Jesus says that is bound inextricably to our second question, and that is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? See, Jesus is trying to ward off any sort of triumphalism on the part of Peter and the disciples. This kind of thinking that because the king has come, let's set the kingdom up now. Let's, 
Let's stage a coup. Let's overthrow Rome. Far too many people in the Christian church have this same sort of triumphalism. And yet Jesus, in verse 21, begins to answer the question, what does Jesus do? What did he do? It's not enough simply to know that Jesus is the Christ. We have to know what that means and what he came to accomplish. What has he done? And so in verse 21, we read, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, must, Go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He must. I want you to look down at the text and see that word in the passage. Must. There's a a divine necessity here. This is a has to, not wants to kind of mission. I don't mean to in any way imply that Jesus didn't want to do this. He did. But the the necessity is what's at the forefront of the passage. I must go. I must suffer. I must be killed. And I must be raised. The reason that Peter is so dumbfounded by this, it's almost lost on us, that, that Israel's great king would come with this kind of purpose, that this would be a must. Well, let's understand that there is simply no other way. There is no other way. Jesus will learn this in the garden as He prays and sweats droplets of blood and says, Father, if this cup may pass from Me, but not My will, Your will be done. I want us to feel the weight of this necessity. Jesus gets His very name in chapter 1, verse 21, because He is the one who saves His people from their sins. And in order for Jesus to enact that mission, He must suffer, be killed, be buried, and raised. God is far too holy, friends, far too holy to sweep our sin under the rug. His justice is far too pure, far too uncompromising, far too exacting to tolerate even the smallest sin. And we are far too broken, far too wayward, far too lawless to ever have fellowship with the God of the Bible. So there is no other way. Jesus must go, suffer, be killed, and be raised on account of our sin. Must. Now, in the cross, there is a demonstration of the love of God in Christ. But similarly, there is a demonstration of of just how impossible it is for God to look on sin. Behold the Son of God on the cross, disfigured, bloody, marred. The wrath of God against sin poured out upon Him. 
and try for a moment to view sin as a light thing. If this is what it takes, our sin must be very great indeed in the eyes of God. The necessity here is the sort of necessity that the surgeon says to a patient, you are in such dire straits, we must operate. There is no time for toying around. We must operate now. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are right. I am the king of the universe. I am the Christ I have come because you are in such dire straits that I must die on the cross in your place and rise again if ever you are to be reconciled to a holy God. But notice the gracious work of God in the cross of Jesus as Peter begins to rebuke Christ saying, far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen to you. What are you talking about? You're the king. No one kills the king. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're a roadblock. You're a stumbling block. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, there's only one other time that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew rebukes Satan in this way. It comes in chapter 4 as Jesus is being tempted by the devil and Satan says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Why Why the suffering? Why the cross? Why the sacrifice? You can have it all and you can have it all now. Ladies and gentlemen, a Jesus without a cross is a satanic counterfeit. Get behind me, Satan. I must do these things. Who is Jesus? He's the king of the universe. What did he do? He died. He was killed. He he was crucified and he raised. These are the things of God. If you're here this morning and you think to yourself, I have sin. I know my guilt. I've broken the law of God. I desire to be forgiven in Jesus. I want His salvation. The greatest question that you might ask is how can I follow Him? How can I follow Him? That's the subject to which Jesus turns in verse 24, how you and I might follow Him. Now understand, loved ones, when I use the language of follow, I am using that word interchangeably with believe in or call upon. The Bible does not know of any sort of wedge being driven by those who believe in Jesus and have called upon the name of Jesus and those who follow Him. They're one and the same. You can't have believed in Jesus if you're unwilling to follow Him. My fear is that we have begun to believe that following Jesus is as simple 
as following an, uh, a celebrity on Instagram. Do you know who has the most Instagram followers? You American football fans are going to be disappointed. He is a bigger star than we've got. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo. Nine, somebody, got, somebody either loves or hates Ronaldo. He has, one, listen to this, 197 million Instagram followers. 197 million people on planet Earth like him enough to look at all his vain pictures of himself. And you can do the same thing just by simply clicking a button. Go home after church, click a button, boom, you're a follower of Ronaldo. Following Jesus is a free call that goes out to all who desire him, but understand there's far more to it than simply clicking follow. It's not merely reciting a scripted prayer. It's not walking an aisle. It's not checking a box on a card. I want you to notice that the person here speaking is not a human preacher. It's Jesus, the God-man. These are the words of Christ. He sets the terms of what it means to follow Him. And look at what He says. If anyone. A pause. Understand Jesus is not dividing Christians into classes. He's not saying that, you know, there's sort of average Christian and then there's master's level Christian. If anyone, He says, would come after Me, let him or her do three things. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here in the shadow of Rome, the very people who invented crucifixion, the most painful and torturous way to be executed in human history. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, understand you're going to get a cross. That in order to believe in me, in order to be brought into my kingdom, freely by grace, you will give up everything. Let him deny himself. None of us does this perfectly. I'm trying to learn self-denial every day by grace, but understand when a man or woman follows Jesus, he or she is no longer the most important person in her marriage, her community, her church, her place of employment. A man is now no longer the most important person in his life. Desires and prerogatives now belong to Jesus Jesus is Lord. He gets to direct the course of my life, what I do, what I say, what I think, where I go. I am to take up my cross and to understand, listen, if this gift is really, truly offered to me in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, if someone is willing to take the greatness of my debt upon his back, then what could he ask of me that would be too much? Jesus, yes, gives His all for His people, but then demands their all for Him. Take up your cross and follow Me.
And you will know, you will know in actual fact whether you have ascertained Christ by whether you're willing to give up everything for Him. That's how you know. I can remember in my conversion, having never read this passage at that point in time, remembering, thinking to myself, every one of my friends is going to disown me. But Jesus will own me. Do the simple math, friends. Quick lesson in investment. If this cost of self-denial, cross-bearing, and following Jesus seems too great, look at the logic of Jesus in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. What could prevent you this morning from following Jesus and denying yourself and taking up your cross other than the desire to hold on to what you believe to be rightfully yours? My life is my life. Well, Jesus says that attitude only results in a loss of life in the final estimation. Whoever would save his life, whoever would hold on for dear life to their own prerogative will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here is the greatest irony of the Christian life that in order to live, you and I must die. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says very simply, if this cost of discipleship seems too great for you today, how will you bear the cost of judgment on that day? How will you do it? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Are you willing to pay the price of your soul eternally on that day rather than denying your earthly life for Jesus today? I was asked recently to consider um, a young man in the church, and I was thinking of one of my all-time favorites, J.C. Ryle, who wrote in the 19th century a little pamphlet entitled Thoughts for Young Men. Now, don't get tripped up on that title. These thoughts are just as useful for young women as they are for old men and old women. But in this little pamphlet, he writes to the young men in his congregation, Never forget that nothing is so important as your soul. Your soul is eternal. It will live forever. The world and all that it contains will pass away. Firm, solid, beautiful, well-ordered as it is, the world will come to an end. The works of statesmen, writers, painters, architects are all short-lived. Your soul will outlive them all. Try, I beg you, to realize that the one thing 
worth living for is your soul. Think for a moment why you were born into the world. Not merely to eat and drink and indulge the desires of the flesh. Not merely to dress up your body and follow its lusts wherever they may lead you. Not merely to work and sleep and laugh and talk and enjoy yourselves and think of nothing but time. God does not look at riches, titles, education, beauty, or anything of the kind. There is only one thing that God does look at, and that is the immortal soul. Believe me, the day is fast coming when the soul will be the one thing men will think of and the only question of importance. Here we go. The only question of importance will be this. Is my soul lost or saved? So what will you give for your soul? I'm burdened for what we might call this morning the unsaved Christian. And what I mean by that, very clear play on words, is that I am burdened for the soul who believes that following Jesus is a light thing that does not include self-denial or cross-bearing, that doesn't really include any meaningful following of Jesus, But understand, to truly be saved, to truly be a Christian, requires that you and I complete the hat trick of answering every one of these questions correctly. So I say again to you, who is Jesus? He's not just another prophet, though he is a prophet. He's not just another nice guy with street cred, though he was and is a nice guy. But he's far more than both of those things. He's the king, the only king, to whom you and I must one day give an account. And what has he done? He's come and given his life in sacrifice for his people, and he's been raised simply because there's no other way. And for you and I to benefit from this work on that cross, Jesus says, come and follow me. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Make me central. View others as more important as yourself. Follow me. This is why in the final estimation, we say we are about disciples who make disciples. Because the only people who are in the kingdom are those very disciples who have taken their cross, denied themselves, and follow Him. Father, there's such weighty words from Your Son. If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Lord, we 
affirm and love the whosoever of John 3.16. We love the everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord of Romans 10. We want to pair and match those phrases with deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Lord, for some of us, this is jarring, unfamiliar. Indeed, many, many of us will find it frightening. And Lord, I pray that by Your grace, just like Peter and the rest of the disciples who left all to follow You, that You would enable each and every one of us here to leave everything in order to follow You. But I pray that just like you revealed to Peter who you are, explained what you would do, and clearly stated the terms of discipleship, that those words would penetrate our hard and stony hearts. Father, thank you for your word. We would never have come up with this on our own. Make the book live to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.